you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. And this morning we uh, will arrive at and pause over uh, verse 11 um, by itself, which finishes off the section that began all the way back in verse 3. So verses 3 to 11 uh, is really answering this question, if I were to relate it to the song that we just sang, it would go this way. So upon what basis can you be assured that you really are a child of God? How can a person know for sure that they are a child of God? That's the question that Peter understands himself to be answering with a fair bit of care. Um, And we are prone to answer that question uh, in American evangelicalism with not so much care. How do you know that you're a child of God? Well, some traditions, I was baptized. I just remember that, and then I know I'm a child of God. Or more in our tradition, I remember asking Jesus into my heart when I was eight. And so, based on that, I know that I am a child of God. There you go. Peter is telling us, I wouldn't do it that way. I wouldn't recommend that you think about it that way. He might even go on to say, I think Jesus warned you not to think about things like that in that way. Because it's that sort of thinking that brings about the warning Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. And I will say to them, I never knew you. In other words, you were never a child of God. So with that said, let's stand together. Verse 11. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, you are indeed the one who reigns in majesty. You are robed in everlasting majesty. 
you are able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond anything that any of us would ask or think. We move about this day on the face of the earth, the earth that you established, and it shall never be moved, ultimately. It's in your hand, and on it goes, because you have established it. Your throne, your kingship, is from of old. It is from everlasting. But Lord, where we live, we often find ourselves in the midst of trouble. We find the waters of difficulty are lifting us up and tossing us about. We hear their roar and we're frightened by them. They bring us troubling news about our health. And we are shaken. They bring us troubling news about the lack of political stability in the world. And for many of your people, that lack of political stability has led to the destruction of their homes, their cities, Their entire way of life is gone. And they find themselves this morning living as refugees in other countries, not knowing what the future holds. And some of these are your people. And they hear the roar of the thunder of the events of life. And we will all hear them. And we'll all face such days and such times. And may we be enabled at that time to remember that you are the Lord and you reign and that your words are absolutely trustworthy Your promises are completely reliable. And when we may have many questions about many directions and much confusion, may you enable us to know that personal holiness befits your house and will be found to be that which is fitting, both now and forever. Lord, may we, as we have just sung, may we not be so prone to fear when the floods have lifted up and they've lifted up their voice and tossed us about. And we are not afraid because we do know who we are. Children of God, your children, 
having a part in your everlasting kingdom. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Seated. As we mentioned several weeks ago, we've really slowed down from verses 3 through 11 and come back to this question of how does Peter teach us to think about the assurance of salvation? Uh, One of my preaching heroes I've mentioned many times, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he actually preached through 2 Peter shortly after World War II, 1946-1947. And by his later standards, he was still clipping right along when he did that. He spent uh, uh, 27 sermons on, uh, on First and Second Peter, 12 of them in the first chapter, which is a little slower than we're going, but to give you a sense of where he ended up. Um, so now, fast forward... To 1954, and he begins a sermon series on the book of Ephesians, which ends in 1962, uh, 232 sermons later, and, um, and he spent 37 sermons on the 23 verses of Ephesians chapter 1, it's like well, that's crazy. You know, what in the world was he doing? Uh, my first year in the pastorate, I read the first volume in that series. I actually read the whole eight volumes that, that year, but I started in chapter one, of course. And those 37 sermons uh, turned out to be Uh, one of the most encouraging things I had ever read on the Christian life in all all of my life. Now, Lloyd-Jones was not trained to be a preacher. He was trained to be a cardiologist. Um, And he he went right from medical residency to preach. So it's not like he knew what he was uh, doing overmuch as a preacher. But for the rest of his days... Uh, he would often talk about the fact that he was he felt really well prepared to handle text because of what he learned about diagnostics and so forth in his his medical uh, training um, and to dig down and to uh, think about causes and solutions and and that 's what you meet with in his his sermons. And so when he comes to a place like we are this morning, you'll note the first phrase of verse 11, for in this way, for in this way. As it's expressed in Greek, it's even shorter than that. Just two words, for thus, for thus. And the thus is the summary of the argument that takes place verses 3 to 10. For thus, in other words, I'm about to reason from the entire argument that we've just been making from verses 3 to 11. For thus, 
There will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And back in verse 5, you remember, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement by means of your faith, virtue. And virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly kindness with love. And then he goes on to say, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, uh, they will leave you uh, neither useless uh, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, ineffectual or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the kind of thing Martin... So, so how in the world would you spend 37 verses? Because he would spend a week on... So what is this moral excellence that you're supposed to have? What areas in your life are you supposed to have self-control if you want to be sure that you are really born again? What should steadfastness look like in your life? After all, your eternal destiny does depend on, at least your knowing about your eternal destiny, depends on whether or not these qualities are yours and are increasing. Don't you think it might be a good idea to know what they are? And so he would pause. And he would talk about them. Maybe one by one. Or at the most, maybe two at a time. And he would work his way forward. For Peter thinks, and Peter's arguing, you need to know whether or not these qualities are yours. And you need to pay attention to whether or not they're in your life in a real and even increasing manner. Because it's really only if they are that you can be pretty sure about your calling and election. Or to the way it's put in the song we just sang, you can be sure You're actually able to sing with credibility. I am a child of God, which is an absolutely amazing thing to be able to sing with credibility. I am a child of God. Or to put it in Peter's terminology at the end of this verse, I belong to the eternal kingdom. State our thesis for this morning this way. The Christian is a person who belongs to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian is a person who belongs to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen again, Peter's words, verse 11. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. Uh, we'll examine uh, Peter's argument under three headings. His argument here is really just a review of verses 3 to 10. He reviews them in verse 11. Uh, so number one, we are asked to review what God has called us to do. We are asked to review what God has called us to do. And we're asked to do that, as I mentioned in the, uh, in the Greek text, in, in the, just two little words, for thus. For thus. ESV has it. For in this way, in this way that I've just outlined for you, in verses 3 to 11, in this way, and as we've already mentioned, the key to that way, uh, central to it at least, verses 5 and 6, for this very reason, make every effort to supply your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness in this way. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. We are to make every effort to see to those things that they're in our lives and, and that they are increasing. Uh, Reformed theologian John Frame, in his book, The Doctrine of the Christian Life, mentions that in all the virtue lists like this that you find in the New Testament, uh, there's tremendous overlap between the various pieces of the virtue list. In other words, they're not airtight categories uh, that don't bleed into one another or overlap with each other, but rather there's tremendous overlap in what is the Christian character, the born-again character. Here's how Frame put it. The virtues overlap considerably. Each one implies and presupposes many of the others. Just as faith, hope, and love all apply one another. So the virtues are more like multiple perspectives on the whole ethical life or spiritual life of the believer. His argument is, and there's a necessary link between these character traits, and whether or not you can say credibly that you are a child of God. But this is really tricky for a modern person to to read this and read about virtue, moral excellence. What Americans think moral excellence is, we touched on this already, but it bears coming back to and remembering where your friends and neighbors are growing up as they have in the United States of America, in the generation that we've grown up in. I mean, for Peter, they'd be pretty well outlined nicely by the Ten Commandments, right? Here's what's moral excellence. Well, moral excellence is that which God has told us is morally Excellent, and at the center of the law is the Decalogue, and there it is. Central place in Israel's uh, history, Paul and Jesus are found. 
going to it in what we have them teaching in the New Testament. That would be the virtue list in, in, in Peter's mind. That is not the virtue list when a modern person hears about virtue and moral excellence. They don't think Ten Commandments. Uh, in fact, at, at, at a number of points, they think absolutely opposite of, of, of Ten Commandments. When I walk through the neighborhood that I live in, there's a, a, a number, of, especially in the month of June, you know, you have a, a number of these rainbow flags outside. They're modified even further now uh, to include more groups technically. Uh, but th- for through that month, this, this is what is called virtue signaling in America. So you put that flag out front by way of telling your neighbors, a person of moral excellence lives here. Uh, and by the way, that's just a well, that's like what, yeah, so what? You know, so you got a, you know, a couple of really far out, you know, liberal people in your neighborhood. All the executives of, at, the, at the NBA uh, agree with them. All of the executives in Major League Baseball agree with them. All the executives at the Olympic Committee agree with them. All the executives at Coke and Pepsi believe like them. The entire complex of messaging in America agrees with that flag. That's moral excellence. But that's not what Peter means. That's not what Peter means. And if you're going to solve the question as to whether or not you're a child of God, you're going to have to know what Peter means by moral excellence. And it's not the same thing as what Major League Baseball means by moral excellence. It's not. And it's really, really important to know that, to pause on it to think about it, or to fast forward in our list down to number five, godliness. Godliness. Godliness is supposed to be yours and increasing. Godliness as a term in the New Testament is not really widely used. It it, it occurs once in the book of Acts, and there it's not translated usually as godliness, but simply as piety. Then it occurs several times in 1 Timothy, once in 2 Timothy, uh, once in Titus, and then several times here in in 2 Peter. Um, The Reformed theologian John Murray, here's his little definition of godliness. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. Let me repeat that for you. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. The emphasis of Scripture in both the Old Testament and the New requires no less significance a proposition. that The fear of God is the soul of godliness. Now, you and I live in a culture where God never comes up. He is simply no big deal. 
He doesn't relate to anything. He's of just about no public importance whatsoever. And yet, if John Murray is right, our assurance of salvation is tied to having godliness in an increasing way in our lives. The fear of God, increasingly, that our lives are increasingly being characterized by the fear of God. And about the only place you're going to find helping you there is the Word of God itself. And biblical tradition that's still alive in the church. That's a quality. It needs to be yours and increasing. Paul says the same thing about it over in uh, uh, 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. Having nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is some, some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. In other words, godliness is relevant now and forever. And forever, he says. So train yourself in it. Be sure it's yours and it's increasing, he says. Well, I don't know about that. Well, but but Peter thinks he does. And Paul thinks he does. So you're supposed to make every effort to see to it that that's going on in your life. That you are somehow increasingly aware of the reality and the importance of God. Secondly, we're asked to review what God has done for us. We're asked to review what God has done for us. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you. Now, this is a place where you get the sense that verses 3 to 11 are very much, you know, a a paragraph of sorts. They're an idea of sorts. As mine has its verse 5 to 11, and that even works better for this, because the verb that's used actively in verse 5 is the same verb is used actively in verse, or passively in verse 11. And as we were talking about last week, that little Francis Schaeffer line from True Spirituality, Reformed theologians actually referred to it fairly often, active passivity, active passivity. So the active part of it is the, the verb in the imperative, a command in verse 5. Um, having made every effort, here's the command, supply, supply. By means of your faith, seven virtues listed off. There it is. 
For in this way, supply, there's the verb, active. Make every effort to supply. Same verb, verse 11, in the passive. For in this way, by doing the stuff in verses 5 to 10, it shall be richly supplied to you. Passive. God is active. We're passive. It shall be richly supplied to you. You will be made a child of God with profound assurance that you're a child of God in this way. This is how God hands out assurance. This is how he gives it. This is how he wants you to have it. For in this way, there will be, and then it's a future passive verb, it shall be richly supplied. The ESV has provided, but richly supplied to make the two verbs the same in English because they're the same verb in Greek. For in this way will be richly supplied for you by means of God's power the entrance into the eternal kingdom. Now, the Apostle Paul thinks exactly the same way. He thinks exactly the same way. Active passivity. So you go over to something like we referred to it last week, but we'll pause on it just a couple extra minutes here. Philippians 2.12. Philippians 2.12. With fear and trembling, work out your own salvation. Active command. See? Make every effort parallels with fear and trembling. Make every effort supply. Fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation. There it is actively. Next line. For God is the one working in you. There, you're passive. God is the one producing that in you. That's not you coming up with it. That's not you accomplishing it. That's not you being a wonderful person. No, that's you evidencing the fact that God is the one working in you both to will and to work. That's what you're looking for. Not earning anything. You're evidencing whether or not, is God working in me? Is entrance into the kingdom being richly supplied to me? That's what you're asking. And Peter says, well, here's how you, can, here's how you know. Is this happening to you? Is this sort of transformation going on in your life, because it's through this kind of activity that you see that God is richly supplying you. So you are doing this because God is doing this. And his action over here is the only possible cause for this action, because it's not you. Well, it is you, but it's not independent you. It's not you just being a wonderful person. It's you being saved. It's you being wrought on 
by the Holy Spirit that's been placed in you. It's you being a born-again person and showing evidence that that's who you are. That's who it is. That's how it works. And that's his argument here in verse 11. Uh, Thirdly, finally, we are asked to review whose kingdom we belong to. We're asked to review whose kingdom we belong to. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Over in John's gospel, the kind of terminology that John uses generally is the one we're following when we, when we ask uh, uh, the sort of question that I heard asked a lot when we were taught to ask of our friends, neighbors, in, in ways, maybe it's just a little subtle or something, but you, the essence of it was that you would eventually get to the place where you're just asking some, are you saved? Are you saved? Well, that's very legitimate terminology. That's John's terminology from the Gospel of John. Um, Though he also, as, we're, as we've already seen this morning, when the uh, text was read from uh, John chapter 1, John also includes the sort of language that Peter's using here. So you see what Peter's saying instead of, are you saved? He's asking, are you a member of the eternal kingdom? Do you belong to God's eternal kingdom? That's the same question. Do you belong to God's eternal kingdom? Uh, And for Peter, that's a really, really important answer uh, to know, whether you do or or not. Now, that's actually the the language that Jesus used with Nicodemus. Uh, You remember uh, John 3, 1 to 5. Now, this man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this one came to Jesus by night, said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one could do these signs which you do unless God was with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Implying to Nicodemus that Nicodemus may not be in it. Um, Nicodemus said to him, paraphrase, what are you talking about? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless you're forgiven and transformed, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless you've experienced the stuff in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 28, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Peter is talking about the stuff in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 28 throughout this whole thing. The eternal kingdom.
One of the things about our day, I read something in the paper just the other day, contrasting politicians of old to our present politicians. Our politicians are a lot older than most politicians were. Uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, died around 60 years of age. And he wasn't even president anymore. Franklin Roosevelt died at age 63. Um, by today's standards, those are, those are really young men. I mean, our president, late 70s, Speaker of the House, 80. And you watch, you watch our politicians... Do whatever it takes for a little extra political leverage, no matter what it costs, in moral terms. I could care less. It's clear. Right and left, we could care less. We easily lie, cheat, and steal. For what? Little more power in the American kingdom. Peter would say, and does say, to us and to them. Are you nuts? Like, metaphorically speaking, you're within like a quarter of an inch of this appointment that the author of the Epistle of the Hebrews talks about in Hebrews 9. Didn't you know it's appointed for a man to die once and then judgment? You're 80. And you're trying to get a little extra prominence in America and you don't care what you pay for it? You'll give your soul for a little extra prominence in America? Are you nuts? And they're not. They're blind. Not nuts. They're blind. Blinded. Completely. Absolute, absolute disaster. Don't worry about anything that He's talking about, Peter's talking about. But you, what kingdom do you belong to? You most concerned about the kingdom of the United States? Or do you have an actual concern and a sense of connection to an eternal kingdom? The kingdom that he refers to as the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a, a place in the text where all, all, every commentator that pays any attention to details, which is all the best ones, uh, they'll, they'll talk about the fact that this is an example of what 
grammarians call the Granville Sharp Rule. Uh, and by, by the, what they mean by that is that at the end of verse 11, um, you're granted entrance into the eternal kingdom, and then there's a definite article before the word Lord. The Lord... And then a connecting word, our Lord and Savior. Article's not not reproduced. Which grammatically, uh, overwhelmingly, in, in the grammar that was in play in the first century means, it's talking about one and the same person. The Lord is the Savior. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's just one person. The Lord is the Savior. The Lord is the Savior. They, they, they ride together. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole theological position in America. Very, very popular. I mean, it's popular, you know, somebody who, who, who argued strongly for it would be Chuck Swindoll. Chuck Swindoll. Well, he's pretty mainstream, Chuck Swindoll. Jesus might be your Savior without being your Lord. It's often the case. He doesn't believe in lordship salvation. I think Peter would say to Chuck, what are, you, what are you talking about? There's no Jesus who's a Savior who's not a Lord, and there's no Jesus who's Lord who's not a Savior. It's the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's, he's both. If you know him, you know him as Lord. If you know him, you know him as Savior. If you know him, you know that he is the ground for the forgiveness of your sins. You've got no other hope. You got no tracker. You can't. You can't hope that you'll go to the end of the age and think, "Well, Lord, just take a look at my record. I think you know I wasn't perfect, but it wasn't all that bad either." Oh no, 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 no! You don't want no, no. You don't want to stand on that, not for a second, not for half a second. No. You want to say, "Lord, my only hope." It's the shed blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. That's my only hope. My track record spells doom for me. The blood of Christ, that's my only hope. I know that. And then he asks you, could my son tell you what to do? Could he tell you how to think about things? Well, I mean, as long as it lined up pretty nicely with Major League Baseball, you don't want to be talking like that. You don't want to be thinking like that. Could my son, could my son tell you what to do? Did he function as Lord if you, of your life in any meaningful way? Now, these two things come together, right? Because, oh, well, 
Yes, but disappointingly so. Well, yes, he's Lord and Savior. He absolutely, absolutely had, had an ongoing need, an absolutely ongoing need for that forgiveness. But notice this, this, this third thing, and this goes uh, back to the, the song that we were singing just before we came into this, right? Really, really, really encouraging song, in my opinion. Uh, uh, longer slave to fear, I am a child of God. Sounds a little bold. Oh, but Peter's language is bold. It's not just supplied to you, richly supplied to you. Entrance into the kingdom, richly supplied to you. You ought to know it. You ought to know it profoundly, richly supplied to you. Daniel Whittle wrote a hymn in 1883 saying all... All my life, the chorus, those of you who are raised in church, you'll recognize it right away. The chorus goes this way. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. In other words, I am persuaded, I am persuaded that he has richly supplied for me entrance in to his eternal kingdom through faith and trust in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know Christ like that? Is he your Lord and Savior? Be sure he is. He's your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If he is, Peter said, you should know. You should know. You belong to an eternal kingdom. An eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would enable us by your grace, through your spirit, to hear your voice. And to be called to make every effort to supply by means of our faith moral excellence. And by means of our moral excellence, knowledge. And by means of our knowledge, self-control. And by means of our self-control, steadfastness. And by means of our steadfastness, godliness. By means of our godliness, brotherly kindness, 
And by means of brotherly kindness, the most profound love for you, that these qualities, by your grace, would be made ours. And be made ours in an increasing fashion. Lord, I pray that you would do that for us. That we might have this profound assurance that entrance into your eternal kingdom, the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ, has been richly supplied to us. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.